And I never will be able For to plough the rocks upon I never will be able For to plough the rocks upon My God. <laughs> I'd say if I wanted to get Biden to come down from Mayo, I'd have uh, got him quicker than getting you. I'm sure I'm here now. Oh, why, why do you not want to come on? I just appeared. Troy, what's the story? Why do you hate me so much? No, no, no. It's nothing to do. I've never, ever done a podcast, David, in my life. And I know very little about podcasts or anything like that because I don't watch them. Or listen so, to them. Or listen to them. And, uh, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not very savvy when it comes to tech. It's only lately that I can, um, we'll say, send a photograph or, or do anything like that. I can send a text, make a call. I don't even send an email. How would you get to that? Uh, I don't know. I'll tell you why. Because you you're a young lad and yeah. you're young one to do it for you. And Roberta. You got lazy. Yeah, I just couldn't be bothered. Uh, do you see even to get into it? Now, I know my email past thing to get in and maybe what is have it? a look. What's your password? Oh, God, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and do you see even me sending, if, if somebody wrote to me and said, Sean, would you send me your email address? I would struggle to even send email. <laughs> Why? Because I'd come to Sean, whatever it is, and then I'd forget the dot. <laughs> and I could spell net wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you, no, you're not that fucking stupid. Uh, well, it's not that I, it's just that I have no interest. <laughs> what do you think of this? It's absolutely brilliant. It's Did your little I, brother do good? It was lovely, yes. And it was lovely to have a look around the convent where I used to be in years ago um, doing music lessons. Not that that done me a lot of good. But well, you made a career out of it, didn't yeah, you? Back in the early 80s, um, when I was going to Bally, well, I was going to the tech here in Mount Rath. And um, we used to come in here and do music and that. It was great, you know. Well, sure. I suppose we'll, um, we'll tear back to the start, like mm. I always do. Right. What age are you? Uh, I'll be 60 now on the 2nd of May. Right, so you were bo- you were the first born in our house yeah. to Mammy and Daddy. That's right. You are Mammy's favourite. No. Look, we look, we can be honest here. It's just the two of us. It's just the two of us. We all Mammy, know. Mammy treats everybody the same. She, she loves same you. She loves you. See, you are her, you're her protege. I wouldn't say that. Um, <laughs> right, so... But it was when funny, you, you know, because when we were, we went over to Port Leash this morning to try to, we took Mammy over to have a look around and you know the way she loves to go to Shaw's and places mm. like that. But anyway, we were coming home and um, I went into the shop to get a few things for, for Mammy. And when I came out to the car, she was talking to Roberta about the day that I was born. And she was saying that it was a... It Roberta was a, is your wife? Yeah, Roberta's my wife. And she was telling her that it was a very, I think it was hailstones or something in the morning that I was born. But you see, I was the first baby to come along between the like first baby in the Cuddy household. And I was the first one on the Heffernan household, even though Mary lived in England, but they never really seen them. So I was the first baby, baby to come along. And she was telling about the amount of presents that people brought up to her for me. What year was that again? 1963. <whistles> Damn! That's a long time ago. Shit! There wasn't even, she was, she was telling me there wasn't even electricity in Octuff. They, they had electricity downstairs, but they had nothing upstairs. And were you born in Octuff? Yes, I stayed now. I was born. That was at, dad's home place? Yes. I was there for, I think I could have been two, maybe one or two before mm. I moved out. No, I'm not, I could be corrected on that now. And you then know. they built the old house? And then the old house was built then. And I think, I think that, you see, 
you know yourself growing up in our house at home. We never really I wasn't, much remarks I on, was the first one born into the new On house. dates or anything like that. So it could have been 64, 65 when they moved in. But I do remember that Mammy and Daddy were the first to have a television in the area. And everybody used to come from all around to look at television and look for, look at them programmes. Do you know, the, like the Fugitive and all them yokes then? And the house would be full. That and that cool. wasn't like back then that probably was a like that was a sm- two bedroom was it two bedrooms and a kitchen uh there was no bathroom um mammy can you remember that well i can remember all that well like what age were you when you moved out with all that was 1980 yeah so you do you would remember you would have been a teenager when you moved into yeah Harry. i was in ballyfin i was a, i was a boarder in ballyfin when we moved into the new house um, what was it like? Which the older than you say when you were in the old house. What like did you? What was it like when you were growing? Can you remember what was your earliest memories? You would have been living in the old house. Yeah, Marty, the youngest in the old house would have been Lyndon Sharon. That's right. Yeah. Well, you can imagine there was a lot of us in one house and a very small house. And I remember Mam and Dad would have been in the bedroom. What the big the big bed? Obviously, having a lot of sex when there was that many kids. <laughs> you, you you must have heard. It. Did you ever hear? Him? No. Tell the truth. We wouldn't have been listening. There's eleven of us. No, there'd be a rag put in the door. <laughs> Jesus, there's probably a rag put in someone's mouth. Well, no, I remember there would have been myself and Seamus in the single bed, and then the four girls were in the other bed. Um, top and tail. Did you farm? Two at the top and two at the back. Or two at the top of the bed and two at the bottom of the bed. I mean, you fa- did you have to farm? Oh, yeah. Well, when I say farm. Like, what was your typical day? That was gone. Typical was, day. Go up in the morning and went. You go up in the morning from the time we were very small and you went out. There was always a cow to be milked. Uh, there'd be calves to be fed. We used to keep a couple of pigs. But they were, they were my pigs. Because granddad would give me a pig or we'd have pet lambs and stuff like that. And then at the end of the season, they'd be sold and that'd be a few pounds for you. But the cow had to be milked and then we'd bring in turf for Mammy for the day when she'd be at home and the smaller ones would be with her. And, um, you know, I, I, when I think back on my childhood, even though it was it was hard, you know, now it was hard because like I don't know how my mother managed, you know, like washing for all of us and all that sort of and carrying water from a well. Washing nappies. Yes. And washing everything. And then we got very well off and there was water pointed to the kitchen. There was a cold tap in the kitchen and um, Mammy had a big big Stanley 9 cooker in the kitchen and the clothes were all dried over there and there was no she had no automatic washing machine she had a twin tub washing machine oh, and I used to hate the feckin' thoughts of the twin tub going pulled, pulled out in the shoes there Why? what was it? There were, it was a wash do you not remember the twin tub washing machines? Oh. right well the twin tub washing machine was a great big barrel type of thing that you filled up with water and it swooshed around like that. The clothes were all true into it. Then they were true from that part of the thing into the spin dryer, which sat beside it. And you just harshed them into that. Then you turned on the spin dryer. There was no such thing as rinsing. The water was in, it was all the one bloody water, like, do you know what I mean? And then the water would be changed for the next load. The white wash would go into one, then the dark washes would go in, and that was the cycle. And then it was true out in the line. But the water had to be carried, David, from the well, which, do you know where the well was at home? Down at the corner, the Down bottom the, corner. It was a fair walk. Yeah. So it took, I think it was 12 buckets of water to fill the washing machine. All had to be carried up 
by hand up along the thing. But we were as happy as Larry. We, you know, I And mean, did you like school? Hated it. Uh, no, even in, from primary to secondary? Or? I, I remember, I can remember my first day in school and <laughs> Mrs. Reynolds was my teacher and she lives here in Mount Rath. Lovely, lovely lady, Maura Reynolds. And Maura actually taught daddy. She's still baby. alive? She's still alive. She lives up, just up, um, you know, she go up to the tech there. Yeah. She just lives on the, on the left-hand side. Lovely lady. I actually called in to see her back last year. And uh, she's, she's an absolutely lovely lady and always was. But I remember when I, my first couple of days in school, I was very shy. You know, I, I was the first sort of to go to school and you didn't know anybody. The only, one that, the only ones that we would have known then would be Mahi Collier and Irene and, Ger- well, Geraldine would have been very small at the time, Timmy Drennan. And they would have been the neighbouring boys around me. That's all it was. And then, of course, Sean Jared next door, but he was a lot younger than me, you know. But I remember my first day going to school and I was terrified. Oh, I was absolutely mortified. And whatever sort of a trousers I was wearing on the day, it kept falling down. <laughs> right? And I couldn't keep the fecking thing up. And I was pulling at it all day. And I remember Mrs. Reynolds said to me, would you take your hands away from your trousers? And I said, miss, if I take my hands away from my trousers, it'll fall down. And I just, and I remember, you know, I remember, I remember school being, being difficult, you know. Teachers were, Mrs. Reynolds wasn't cross, but teachers were cross and very, you know, like, I mean, if you, if you didn't do what you were told, there was a, a stick brought out and you'd be, be poleaxed with it, like, you know what I mean? So why did you go boarding? Pardon? Why did you go to a boarding school then? I don't know, Asher. I, I'll tell you, when I when I was in sixth class in with Mr. Healy, um, the, the, then the, the, the church used to come around, the monks and that, as we used to call them, to look for boys and girls to join the religious orders. <laughs> and um, they'd come along and they'd come in and chat and to do these chats, you know, to come to such and such a school and maybe in time you might become uh, part of a religious, re- religious order. Now, <laughs> at, that, <laughs> well, at that time, I wasn't that interested in nothing like that. So I went to the tech in Mount Rath and I was there for about a year and a half, maybe two years. And, um, you know, Mammy and Daddy reckoned that this wasn't making much of me, you know. And I took this mad notion then that I'd go to Ballyfin as a board a border. So I went to Ballyfin anyway, and I lasted in that for a year as a border. I couldn't wait to get out of it. Oh my God! And now nothing happened to me. Right? Well, how how did you get away with not getting into timber like everyone else? So everyone around you, hmm. like dad, all your cousins, mm-hmm. all your uncles, uncles that were roughly the same age, yeah, yeah, were all getting into timber. How did you? get into singing like, and you, you were into singing and stuff from, from the time I was very small yeah how did that happen I think that my uncles all thought I was an alien that I didn't come from that neck of the woods or that I didn't come from one of them or along that blood yeah. because I was sitting at home from the time I was maybe five years of age listening to Big Tom Records and that's all I wanted. I loved music. Was mum and dad into music? Oh, they were. They loved all that as well. And they used to buy the records for us. And with an old record player, they used to sit in the fridge at home in the old house. And I'd sit 
jigging from side to side. I, I can remember it as, as plain as day doing it. Can you remember the first time you sang in public? Yeah. When? It was in Camros Hall. I was five. Father Dunphy brought me down and got me to sing at a concert. And Tom and Pascal were on the concert. that They used to be a variety group. They used to go around to Ireland playing at things and doing little sketches and that. And he said to me, you know, would, he said to Mammy, would Sean Michael come in some night and sing? Because they knew that that's what I wanted, what I love doing. And I sang a couple of songs and then... At five, you knew all these songs? I did, yeah. Because you were doing... Mammy was bringing you around, obviously. Go, go on, Sean, do your little song. Well, no, it wasn't really like that either. It was more like I was listening to it at home in the house. And all I and watching the television and seeing these singers. And Big Tom was my favourite singer. Was he cool back then? Well, he was cool then. Like, I'll give you an example. When I was, I think I was six, and Big Tom was playing at the Osry Club in Boris and Osry. And I knew that he was coming to Osry, and I said to Mammy, oh, I have to go and see Big Tom. Take me down to see Big Tom. She said, you won't be let into the dance. Well, I said, take me down early, and I can maybe meet the boys what in the band. What age were you? Six. I can remember this. And Daddy and, no, Mammy, Daddy and Mammy, I think, took me down and I got to meet the band. And Big Tom turned around and said to me, sure, come on in to the dance later. I said I wouldn't be allowed in. It was a dry hall then, David. There was no um, drink. It was a tea bar and a mineral bar. Okay. That was the, the crack. So later on that night, um, that, that committee turned around and said, Asher, bring him on down if he wants to see Big Tom. And I remember going down to the dance and uh, sitting on the right-hand side of the stage. And I can remember rightly, Mammy was there and Daddy and Bridie, Bridie Heffernan and Joe. Mm. And Bridie went up to be, I'm, I'm nearly sure it was Bridie, went up to Big Tom and said, call Sean Michael up to sing a song. And the next thing, Big Tom called me up on the stage. I was in primary school at this stage. Mm. I was in, was I in high infants? I think it was high infants, yeah. And um, I got up and I sang a monologue be What's careful that? of stones that you throw. Where you talk through the song as well as singing it. <laughs> Honest to God. And I, I vague, I, I, I can remember looking, at the place was absolutely packed. All you could see was heads and everybody stopping. Were you nervous? No. But I'd be more nervous now. But I wasn't nervous. And then I sang. And I remember the boys saying, what key is he singing? And I just turned around and said to one of the boys, the same t key as Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so I started singing and I sang the two songs and I remember not believing that I actually done it and then Daddy, Daddy and Mammy take me to dances after that but when I went into school the next morning it had got out that I was after, after been singing sure I was it was like as if I was a superstar Did that plant a seed in you from there? Ah yeah yeah. After like did you think oh that, that's it I want to do this any chance I get? No I thought at that time I wanted to do music, but I didn't know that I'd end up doing... See... We'll get there. Relax. We'll get there. But you see, it was... I don't know what you... You see, David, the area that you have grew up in and the area that I grew up in were so different. We have options. You have social media, you have phones and all that sort of thing. Communication then was just word of mouth, newspapers and RTE. That was the that was the whole thing. So everything was word of mouth. So how did you and when you started your first band, mm. like did you have to rope the girls into that? 
like, or did you just go, I want to perform, I need a band? No. What actually happened with the, with the music was I was still tipping away up to leaving school singing. We're doing a couple of talent competitions, myself and the girls. And we won a couple of talent competitions and we were always in Scoring Oak for the GAA in Camros. And we could go so far, but Camros, you see, and I'm not trying to be sounding bad, but we never could get out of the county because there was always a few people at the top that wouldn't let you out that far, mm. if you know what I mean. Yeah. In the Scoring Oak. So then I joined Coltus. And Stephen Conroy and Mary from Roundwood were absolutely brilliant and they were very high up in Coltus. And when I was 16, I entered solo, solo singing. And the first year I won the Leinsters and that's as far as I went. And then the second year I came second in the All-Ireland. And what did you have to sing? The Roxabon. It's one of my favourite songs that you On sang. my own. That was what I sang. And that's... But Who taught you that song? I was singing at a talent co- I was singing in Scorning my first year in Scorning and this gentleman was up, he was in the Leinster final and he was, an, like I would say, an old man then, but he was probably 40. And he sang the Rocks of Balm without any music and I said, God, that's a great song. And I asked him for the words of it and the air of it and he, he gave it to me on a tape and I learned it. And I've been singing that since. I do it at shows, even still in, in England and Ireland as well. It makes shit stop, doesn't it? It does. And with no music, it's no, mad. It's, it's mad. But wait, how did you go like, um, so that was wasn't with the girls. No. Like you were on television with the girls and everything. Well, yeah, and anything goes yeah. back in 1981, I think it was. I think the girls, Sharon would have been only four. The girls were only four, but they were only very, very young. I was 18 at the time, 17, 18 at the time. And I remember daddy and mammy, uh, when I got word, I wrote anything. I just wrote anything goes one day. At home in the house, I wrote, I was watching Anything Goes and I said, that producer, and I took down his name and I'll write to him now and I'll see what I, and three weeks later we got a, a, a letter, you've been chosen to do an audition. I don't know where we even done the audition, but we were picked to do it. And I remember daddy and mammy taking us up to, now Dublin was a big deal. To go to Dublin was a big deal then, to drive to Dublin. And I remember daddy had bought a Volvo 264 Great big monster of a thing. And we were all sitting in the back of this car. And Daddy had never been further than New Lens Cross when he used to drive the timber up mm. there. And he'd turn into the left, into the sawmills, but you never went any further than New Lens Cross. With the truck. Because once you're going into Dublin, that was into, like going into the jungle to us. Because mm. you hadn't a bull's notion what you were doing. So Daddy anyway went in and we decided, Daddy said, sure, we'll go up as far as Marion's and we'll get a taxi then up to Donnybrook, up to RTE. Cheney worked me driving in at Newlands Cross and the car broke down. <laughs> and I can't remember what we'd done or how we got, we did get there anyway, we did get to Anything Goes. And Anything Goes was a real highlight. To be on television then, David, was a huge deal. Do you know what, it really was a huge deal. Yeah. So that was the start of it probably. So when did you say... Obviously, like you, you left school and you went working. Mm. Like you went working in, where was it? When I left school, when I finished in Ballyfin, uh, I had this notion that I wanted to be a nurse, male nurse. But people wanted you to go to Timber. Oh, well, I, they probably thought I wouldn't be worth a shy hat anyway, you know. I, listen, I did work at the Timber now. You didn't like we'll it? Get to that. Oh, no, well, I won't say I didn't like it. 
But <laughs> if you were to go through the stages of your life and, and the things that you've done. When I left school, I, c- I couldn't bear the thoughts of going into a wood there in the mornings and the cold. and Like everything had to be done by hand, David. Then. Oh no, it was, it was, it was serious. But what I'm finding funny is if it was everyone else you knew was doing it. Everybody. I remember a funny thing happened one day in, in school in, in Camrose. And it was Mr. Healy and myself and Pat Moore. And Pat now is, he he has a forwarder and you know Pat. Yeah, I know. And Pat and me would have been very good friends in school and Dermot Ash and Ray Dunn. And we were all in the one class and who had Dan Sheeran. Well, Dan was in every class. Poor <laughs> Dan, <laughs> Dan, Dan, I remember Dan was so funny. We used to laugh he's at that. He's still funny. He still is. And I hope if he's listening to this podcast, I hope he doesn't take it too serious what I'm about to say. But I remember Dan, he would do... I done very little, but he done absolutely <laughs> nothing. But Dan, Mr. Healy, and I knew that Mr. Healy used to do this for a bit of a laugh because Dan got kept back in a couple of classes. <laughs> so they used to keep you back years ago if you weren't, yeah. you know, if you weren't doing your work. And it nothing got to do with intelligence because we were all a sort of, do you know, when I think back on it now, and I know they talk about, you know, people been maybe autistic and on a spectrum and all that sort of thing. We probably were, in a sense of speaking, because we weren't, I would never class myself that bright. I could pick up things, but useless at maths. I think it's just, you just weren't interested in what you were being taught. But I remember anyway, this day anyway, um, Mr. Healy turned around and we were talking about um, what you like to do activities and what you'd like to do when you get older and all this sort of thing. And I said, well, some oh, the boys love football, hurling. Oh God, hurling used to drive me mental because I hadn't a bull's nose. And you were the only one that wasn't into it as well. I wasn't into that either. <laughs> so here was I in the middle of GAA, I had stopped, not interested in that. Timber, not interested in that. <laughs> so you can just picture the, yeah. the, the scene like. And now in fairness to mammy and daddy, they never, ever, ever would have said, like, Daddy would never have said to me, you know, you have to get up off your arse and go and, and, and work at the timber like the way everybody else did. And he never did, or neither did Mammy. They, they, they sort of let you do your own thing. But there was a certain peer pressure that you were not an outcast, but you were different. Mm. And I probably was different because I didn't have them interests. So, which meant that I wasn't socialised. So then, at about maybe 12 or 13 years of age, I started doing a bit of hurling, but sure, I was useless. I mean, you'd be as well with my dog at home, the Labrador running around with a hurl, because that's as much as I knew about it. I was brutal at So it didn't last very long, you know, and in, and in fairness to different people in cameras that kept saying to me, you're a cuddy, you have to know how to hurl. <laughs> but it doesn't work that way, you know. No. And then I was a heffernan, and they, you know, the heffernans love hurling as well. And so it was a sort of a thing that was a foregone conclusion that that's what you were going to do. So when I left school, I said to myself, well, what am I going to do? So I had this thing in my head, but the first job I got was reading meters for the electricity board. And I remember daddy, daddy bought me a Honda 75 motorbike from Radon, right? And it was only about maybe, it was like as if you were sitting on the ground. It was such a small little bike. Sure, I was delighted with myself. So I had this bike anyway for a while going around reading the meters. Then I got, I'd come really up in the world and I got a 175. So I did that for a little while. I won't go into the ESP meters thing because it's probably a bit 
funny the things that went on, but it was it was enjoyable to a point. Mm. Then I got a job in Mount Melick in the hospital. Um, I went for um, for you. You probably don't remember Larry Delaney. Larry was a neighbour of ours. Vaguely, we used yeah. to go down and get sweets and stuff. Off. Larry was an absolute gentleman, and Larry and Tish and Matt. They lived in a little old house just down the road from us. And we used to always go visiting them. And the reason we went visiting them really was because we used to get lemonade. We used to get chocolate. We used to get sweets. We used to get all this sort of stuff. So we'd go to visit them really to get this. But when we'd go in, David, it was like we were treated like royalty. The table would be set and you'd get tea and biscuits and all this sort of thing. And Larry got very close to me and he used to take me to Ross Gray and he'd take you to the shop and he'd do things for you. And he said to me, Mushin, he says, you should go for a job in the daycare centre in Port Leash. They're looking for people to work in the daycare centre. Mm. So at the time it was the Midland Health Board. So I applied to the Midland Health Board for this daycare job, which would be a great job if you could get it, but I didn't. But... When I did the interview on the day, there was a lady, she was the matron, assistant matron in Mount Melick in St. Vincent's. And she was on the thing. I didn't get the job. But two weeks later, she phoned the house. We didn't have a phone at home. She phoned Octuff. And she said, I was on the interviewing panel and we're looking for staff from Mount Melick. Would you be interested? And I said, of course. So I went and did an interview and got the job as an attendant. And I was the youngest attendant with the health board. I was just 18 when I got a full-time job with the, with the Midland Health Board at the time. Uh, it was a geriatric hospital, and I loved it. It was great crack. But I was still doing the music as well, part-time. At night time? Yeah. Going down to different pubs and stuff? Going out to the pubs and with myself and my two with Elizabeth and Martina. And then Lizzie, Elizabeth had met some, well, Martina had met John. And uh, I'd, Martina was a sort of not wanting really to be there. She wanted to, and I could understand that as well. So the girls decided, decided to to pack in the music. Were you were aging. Pardon? I was at the time because I didn't know what I was going to do. Because that was what you really wanted. I loved that. And I thought, you know, that we had a future. And we, we were very busy. As a three-piece, we'd done all the pubs around. Offaly was a fantastic county. You know, there was music everywhere. I mean, you had Kilcormac, you had Tullamore, Bora, Burr, the Angler's Rest, uh, all the Ferban, Clohan, um, all those places were doing pubs. And the music was flying. You could be over there three nights a week, David, and Greyhound crowds. And we we were popular, you know, as a as a family, family band. Mm. And then all of a sudden, then the girls didn't want to do it. So what did you do then? I didn't know what to do. I, I, there was a guy moved over from England to, to, he was originally from Mount Rath, Kieran Fogarty. And Kieran had come back from England to live in Paddock again. He was building a, his house that he's living out there mm. in at the moment. And Kieran came home doing a one-man show. And he was using a, a rhythm unit and a guitar and a flange pedal and a, and, a, and a phaser pedal and all this. And he was just brilliant. And I mean, I looked at him and I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'll try that. And for the next six, seven years, that's what I've done. Going on your around, own? On my own. Going around to the pubs. And um, when you say phaser pedals, they're like what? Um... It would give a sort of like a steel guitar effect off the guitar when you press this little pedal. It was bloody ridiculous. I mean, all I knew was four chords. And I. <laughs> and were you I, able to blag away with four chords and sing? Yeah. Because what I, and I, Jesus, if there was musicians now listening to this, I remember this musician coming up to me one night 
And I was playing in a pub over in Borough and the place was packed and it was a great night. And you see, I'd have been very clever at the music I'd pick. I'd pick very simple songs. I'd pick all the big Tom stuff, Larry Cunningham stuff. No rock and roll, no nothing, no, none of that stuff. Like you used to say, bread and butter music. Bread and butter music. Bread and, butter and I'd music. play... Uh, me D, G, A. I couldn't play an F, I couldn't play a B, I couldn't play A minor, I couldn't play any of those chords. I, the only chords I knew was D, E, A, C, and G. Right? And this man's laughing. I'm only telling you the truth. And, <laughs> and you talk about, you know, uh, not getting away with it, but just was able to manage. And what I used to do was I had a capo. Do you play guitar? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right, so this man understands. I had a capo. And I'd move the capo up and down, up and down the fret. Now, if somebody came up to me wanting to sing a song and they'd say to me, I sing Pretty Little Girl from Home in the key of F, I'd say, all right, do you? Right. And I'd just stick on the capo and I'd give him the shit. He said, that doesn't sound like F. Well, I said, it is F. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be F. It could be Z for all I'd know. But... I bluffed it. And I remember one night playing in Borough and I knew by the gimp of this lad down the hall that he was a musician. You know, when you look down the hall, a lad's looking and when he'd see you doing something wrong, he'd be going, oh. <laughs> he'd be going, Jesus Christ, you know, that's shocking. What he's at. And what I used to do was, I had a, a H&H amp and slave you probably wouldn't understand the amplifiers. And then I had two great big Pro 150 H&H speakers. It would take two men to lift the feckers onto stands. But I had a good sound. I had a good quality sound. You know? Even though maybe what I was doing wasn't right, but I plugged guitar into the amp, my rhythm unit into the amp, my vocal into the amp, and it was a nice sound. This guy walked up to me and he says to me, this was a Friday night, I'm a musician, he says. I say, yeah. I'm very pleased. What's your name? And he kept looking at me. Do you know he says what you're doing there is all wrong? I says, right. What do you mean it's all it's just all wrong? He says. I mean, he said you're playing I I, I never I never heard the like of it <laughs> in my life. And I says, really? I said, it's absolutely shocking. <laughs> I says, yeah, but I'm working and you're at home. You're looking at me. <laughs> and what did he say? <laughs> he walked out. I've never seen him since. <laughs> and, and, so when did things start getting serious? Like, when did you decide this is going to be a thing? Well, getting back to the hospital, I was working in the hospital full time. And now, bear in mind, when you got into the Headland, Midland Health Board, it was a job for life. Mm. Um, I was earning the summly total of £64 a week. Go away. Oh, my God. And that was a lot of money. I mean, I remember I would have, you couldn't spend it, but then all I had was a little, a little small, what sort of a car had I? I hadn't got a car for a while. I bought a Toyota Corolla 20, a little brown one, ULI 19. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the reg of it. And it was, oh God, it was lovely. And I remember I, I don't got think it, it was. in Cunningham's in Portlaoise. Now, if you've seen it today, it's a what an awful looking yoke. Well, I was like a dog with two pricks going around in that car. And that was what I was driving. And it was costing me something like £24 a month or something like that on a bit of finance, right? And I was driving this little car anyway, uh, up and down to work. So you, you could, like £64 was a good bit. If you worked on a Saturday, then you got an extra fiver. And if you worked on a Sunday, you got another tenner. Just to put this in perspective, how much 
was a bottle of Coke back then? Well, a gallon, uh, you'd fill the car with petrol for eight quid. All right, that makes a lot Do you know sense. what I mean? You'd fill the car with petrol for eight quid. Um, you go into, we'll say, you'd buy a sandwich. Well, no, you couldn't buy a sandwich really then. There was... You there was nowhere to get that. No, there was nothing like that, you know. But you'd buy a bag of chips and a burger for a pound. Yeah. Maybe yeah. one fifty. So relative to what yeah, we were it was, earning. It was decent. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that I was working away anyway in the hospital. The next thing, I was put on night duty. Then the whole thing changed. So I went into the sister anyway, the the the, the, the head nun and I the, the the matron and I said to her. Did you like her? No, me and her didn't see eye to eye. Was she old? She was an old lady, yeah. No, she was. Listen, was there a lot of nuns working in there? We had there was the sisters, sisters of mercy. There would have been ten or twelve. Were there any of them? And you got mercy? No, none of them. No, all not hot. Ah. <laughs> well, no, I mean you don't look at a nun and say she's hot. I've seen a hot nun. Have you? I've seen a hot nun. Right. Yeah, absolute waste. Well, I just Jesus, put it this way. I love Jesus. He doesn't deserve that. They were lukewarm. Lukewarm. lukewarm right. Then. So you you were on night duty. You, you didn't like it. No. You walked into and say, "Hey, you're breaking me balls no, here." I went in and I said to the sister, "I said, sister, I do a bit of music part time." She looked at me. Right. I said, "How long do I have to do nights?" Well, as long as I want you to do them, she said. So what you done was was a week on, week off. So she, she promised me faithfully that she would put me on three weeks night duty, week on, week off. And then I could sort of sort out my Did dates. she swear to God? No, she didn't swear. Hi. But that was okay. Um, it didn't really work out. But the night duty, the night duty wasn't that hard. Um, it was just, you had a lot of cleaning to do. in the Because Mount Mellick Hospital, have you ever been there? Yeah. It's an absolutely beautiful place. And I, I always say, you know, that anybody, and I have to admire people that work in that health profession because it is quite hard work. But Mount Melick is one of the nicest, um, if you want to call it, units in the country that I've ever been in. And I had the pleasure of working there. But they were very, very strict about the cleaning regime in the middle of the week. So my job, because I worked on St. Joseph's, was to clean and polish and dust the main hall, the chapel, the statues, and all that sort of thing. So me being me at the time, I used to say, should I never know whether I dust or what I do? You mm. know what I mean? But they did. They knew. They were able to know. They'd go around in the mornings and they'd be rubbing their fingers along. That that was the way they were. So that was okay. Um and after the three weeks, they put me back on nights again. So I decided this is it now. I'm I'm going to leave. So I went in to uh, the sister one day. I was coming off night duty, and I said, "Sister, I've been thinking about this, and it's not really working out for me. I'm going to leave the job." And she said, "Why?" I said, "Well, I'm doing music." You mean to tell me, she says, that you are going to give up a pensionable? job to go out and sing in pubs I said yeah does your mother and father know this she said to me <laughs> I will have to ring them to have a word with them to get you to you know cop yourself on you know but I left 
and I went full time then working on my own. And uh, what was it like going full time working on your own at music? Like, what did that I entail? Was a bit lonely. Now, like, what did you? How did you start off doing that? Just now, you know, I have to say, just do your own. You know, getting dates and going into pubs and looking for work and doing all that sort of stuff. You know. So, what year would it have been that you got your break? The thing started happening. Well, I'll tell you what happened in 1986. Yes, no, 87. I was playing in a place called the, the, the Mountain View Lounge in Mount Bolas in County Offaly. And um, I was finished up after playing and these two ladies walked up to me and they said, are you going into the Harriers in Tullamore? I said, no, hey, what's in the Harriers in Tullamore? Oh, she said, there's a dance on there every Sunday night. Two women? Two, two ladies. Wanted yeah. to, but their husbands were wanted with them. Tag team. Oh. oh, no, their husbands were with them. All right. See, I knew that no. you were going to go there No, I don't know. Did this you is, not know he was going to go I there didn't, with that? No. Yeah, I knew, yeah. See, no, I was just wondering. So their husbands were with him. Oh, yes. So it was a swingers thing. No, no, no. No, they just wanted you to come into the Harriers. Yes. At so. that time, was that a nightclub or just a, a dance? That, when a you dance. say a dance. You see, the pubs all closed at 10 mm. o'clock on a Sunday night. I'm trying to get the timeline right. Yeah. So a dance back then would have been a band playing and people dancing. Yes. Jiving. Jiving, waltzing, quick steps, yeah. all that sort of thing. Yeah. And she said to me, "Would you? are you not going to go into the Harriers? There's this new singer singing in there and he's supposed to be brilliant, Daniel O'Donnell. Daniel had just come on the scene at that particular stage, well, maybe a year before. And I said, well, I don't really know anything about him, you know. Well, so I put in the gear into the van and I had a blue, what had I at that time? Oh, a little Toyota Corolla van mm. that I bought from Cecil Lewis in Port Leash. Threw the, the gear into the back of the van and I said, Crash, I'll go on to Tullamore and I'll see what this is all about, you know. So I walked into it and I went in and the place was packed with people and I walked around the hall and looked around me and next thing this lad young fella came on stage and I looked up at him and I said God wouldn't it be lovely if I could have a band and do what he's doing be the you front know? of it yeah front of band now he was the first at that time I know you had the big toms but there had been a lull in music that had all a sort of died away David the, the big the, tom and the marigolds and stuff finished, had finished for a few maybe ten years <laughs> So I said, God, I'd love to do something like that, but how do you go about it, you know? So I came home from the dance that night, and the following week I went to the markets in Port Leash, and I was I was always buying tapes, and it was tapes at that time, you know? So I saw these tapes, and anyway, I bought one of Margo, and your man said to me, you have this new singer, Daniel O'Donnell, do you want it to? I said, oh, God, I'll take his couple of tapes as well. He's only new on the road. I had seen him the week before. So... Bought the tapes, played it in the car, and I said, God, I think I'll, I'll maybe do something like that, you know. But again, it all boiled down to money, David. Do you know what I mean? Because to go out and record was absolutely huge money. There, there wouldn't have been that many recording studios no, back then. No, and there wasn't. And there was one recording studio in Athlone called um, Chan Nicholson's Place. And I had heard about that from the guys that were playing relief to Daniel that night. There were a local band in Tullamore called Manhattan. So they said about this studio that was that was up in, where was it? Yeah, up around that loan. But I rang a man in that loan anyway, but he was far too expensive. I couldn't afford it. So I went to Slane and I recorded four songs up in Slane, myself and the boys out of the relief band. I asked them, would they do the backing? So we went up and we did that. 
And how did you pick the four songs? I I picked them. Mammy, I think, picked one. I did the Blue Hills of Breffney. Uh, Weave and Spin was another one. And if those lips could only speak, that granddad taught me. And I can't remember what the other one was. And you know why I came back and I, sure, I thought this was great. And it was shocking. It was an absolutely brutal recording. Do you still have it? I have it, yeah. I wouldn't let the dog hear it. I think if I sh- let the dog hear it at home, he'd, he'd probably go to Lifford and never <laughs> come back. But um, no, it was, it was bad. But sure, I thought it was great. So I was okay. I tipped away then. What did you do with that tape? Tried to sell it? I did. I, tried. I did sell some of them now, I have to say. People were brave enough to buy it. Was they bought off me at the pubs, you know, it's right off this way. And you see, to have a tape in them times was you were big stuff. If you if you if you went in and done a record, it made you look more professional. Yeah. Now, what really brought me down to earth with a bang was I remember our, there was a pirate radio station in Mullingar, and they were flying it. And Don Allen, he was the big DJ at the time. He was the man all over country music in the middle 80s. And if you got on Don Allen, you were made, right? And I went over anyway to Don Allen with my with my tape. Physically over to him. Physically over to him, in through the door, banged on the door. Don came down to me and he says, uh, what's the crack? And I told him, he said, I'm a, I'm a singer and I'm after doing this. Would you play it on the radio? Well, he said, I'd have to listen to it first. So he brought me up anyway into the editing room and he played it and I knew by his face that this was not going to get played in the radio. Ah, he says, uh, I think maybe the best thing that you would do now, he said, is go to a better studio. You can sing, he said, a bit. <laughs> but he wasn't blowing me up now or anything like that. And I said, right. So I went was away. Was that hard? Huh? Oh, you get knocks. God, there's some knocks in this business. Uh, you know, I banged on some doors and some record companies and got some rejection and all that sort of thing. But you have to just... I remember granddad saying to me one time, he said, you know, there's no point in you worrying about what somebody else is doing or what somebody else has. You have to go out and make that happen for yourself. Wise words a hundred years ago. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But like, again, it was a different time. I wouldn't like to be trying to start a band today. So when did you, so did you get another recording done? No, I went off then. And I was working again, and uh, I remember saying to Larry Delaney one day, um, I'm thinking of recording a song, but sure, I, that no financial institution would give me money. Because like, I, just had a, I was just a one-man show going around, so I didn't have what you'd call a steady job, mm. if you know what I mean. So I said to him, I, want, and I, would have, I needed to record four songs in this studio. I needed four and a half thousand. Pounds. That was a lot of money back then. Now, back in the middle 80s, that was a lot of dosh, mm. right? And I was thinking, how am I going to get this money? And I had to get this money. And I remember going down to Larry Delaney one day and I said to Larry, I said, Larry, if I went to get a loan in the bank, would you guarantee the loan to buy, to do this tape? Mush and I will, he says, no problem at all. He says, I'd have every faith in you. So he... um but Larry picked me up wrong. He was a bit deaf of hearing. And Larry thought that I asked him for the £4,000, oh. right? So he says, Mushin, you come down Monday morning and we'll go into the AIB in Mount Rath, he says, and I'll sort that out for you. So we went into the bank anyway. Now, I never told my father and mother or anything like that. Why didn't you go to that man? 
Huh? Why didn't you go to mum and dad? I wouldn't, because I wouldn't ask mummy and daddy. You know, mummy and daddy, you know, you wouldn't, you just wouldn't do that. You know, whatever you were going to do, it was going to be your own baby. And if it went wrong, it went wrong. (laughs) And it could have went wrong. But Well, it it was hard now, you know, it's a a long story. But um, I remember going in anyway, and the bank manager at the time, I probably shouldn't be talking about this in the podcast, really, because I told lies up to me bloody eyeballs to get the money. But I went in anyway, and I said to Marion Hayes, who was the man, a lovely girl she was too, and I said to her, I was doing a record, and it was going to cost me X, and I have a record deal, God, and they're going <laughs> to do this, and they're going, I had no fucking record deal, I had nothing. And I said to her, um, I wanted to get the money. And Larry said, no, no, Mushin, I'll give you the money. I'm taking the money out of my bank account and giving it to you. I said, no, Larry, I want you to sign as a guarantor for the money. I don't want you to give me the money. So she wrote out, I'll never forget, she wrote out the loan application. And there was no such thing as having to put her through Dublin or put her through any of this rubbish. She just said, ah, sure. She said, man like Larry Delaney behind you, it can't go wrong. And she said, come in and I have the money for you tomorrow. That was that? That was it. And you tore up to what recording studio? I tore up to Athlone. Big, you felt like the big dick then, I did felt you? like the big dick then. And what was it like going in there? I was delighted with Same songs? Oh, I recorded Little Nell, Don't Step on Mother's Roses, Dear Old Galway Town, and Need Someone to Hold Me When I Cry. They were the four songs that I'd done. How long did it take to record them? Uh, three days. And did they have all the musicians there? Yes, and everything? they had all the musicians there. Sure, I thought I was... You know, this was, it was only the, the tip of the iceberg, really. But I recall, and Little Nell was my favourite song, and I felt that Little Nell could be a huge hit, you know. But who was I going to get to do it? Who was I going to, what record company? And if you sent your song to somebody, the chances are to give it to somebody else. And take it. And the song was gone. So, clear to God, I got my, 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 my recordings done. And who was in the Tullamore Harriers the following week playing? Daniel O'Donnell. And I asked the relief band that were on, could I front the band that night? Because I wanted to get talking to O'Donnell. But I'll just tell you the things that you do. Hmm. In, and this was all like me thinking, you know, if I do this now, if I get talking and to And this is back band, in the A's. This back in the he might give me a you know, leg up or something like that. So at the end of the night, no, I did my spot, went down very well, everything was grand. And I said to Daniel, I said, Daniel, my name is Sean Cuddy. Right. And he says, um, I come from Leash. Right. I'm after recording a couple of songs and I'd love to get involved. Oh, really? And I says, yeah. Well, he says, will you wait for me till the end of the night and I'll have a chat with you? I says, this lad now is no more going to talk to me at the end of the night than the man in the moon. But at the end of the night, there was a queue a mile long waiting to meet this chap. It was snowing. Outside the Tullamore Harriers, I remember well, and I was sitting in my little van, and he came out and he sat into his Volvo for 760 at the time, which was the dog's... Bollocks. Well, I didn't say that, you did. But it was the car, and I said, oh, look what he's driving <laughs> to myself. And he had a driver. He wasn't driving, he had a driver. And he called me over, he said, sit into the car. And I told him what I wanted to do. He says, will you send me the song? and I'll do something for you. I have some friends in the business, and I'll get you in contact with the right people. And I said to myself, right, I'll never hear another word from him, probably. Sent him the song, trusted him, sent him the song. And three weeks later, I was sitting in the house, in Act Duff, 
And the next thing, the phone rang and Auntie Anne went out and answered it. And I was sitting in the kitchen. She came back and said, there's a lad called Daniel O'Donnell on the phone looking to talk to you. Is that the lad that sings? I said, it must be him. So I went out. I thought it was somebody taking the piss now. Mm. So I went out and said, hello. Hello, this is Daniel. I says, how, is it really Daniel? Well, who else would it be? Because <laughs> like, there was no joking around then, you know what I mean? So he said to me, listen, he said, I've had a word with a friend of mine, Shea Hennessy in Ketel Records, and he's willing to meet you, to have a chat with you about the record. So I went up, met Shea, and the rest is history. Got a record deal. Got a record deal. Shea released the single, it went into the top 30. And it went into the top 30. And does it happen overnight? Like, was it like, that was it? Like, in no. the space of a... In the space then, we, we had a, there was six weeks. Oh, there was a few meetings after that. Because like, you have I, to get a band and you have to get... I had nothing at the time. No band, no musicians, no nothing. I remember going up and meeting Shane. He said, right, we're going to release this song in September. Which one? Little Nell. And he said, I have high hopes for it. I think it could go into the charts. But I said, when will we launch the band? Well, don't worry about the band yet. We'll try and get you launched onto the scene. But he said, you know, you keep doing what you're doing. You keep working away and doing what you're doing. So I kept working away, doing what I was doing. And the record company ran me and said, we're releasing Little Nell next Monday. Now then... What did that mean? They were just making radio stations play? Out to radio stations. One sales. You see, you sold records then, David. If you got play on national radio, people actually went out and bought the singles. You did physically bought singles. So the single was released, Little Now was released on a Monday. And on Thursday, the record company phoned me and said, your song has gone into the charts at 28. Little Nell has gone into the, into pop charts. And were you delighted? Sure, I didn't know what to say. I was absolutely... I couldn't believe it. And it was on the Sunday World. And then it went It went from 28 down to 27. And then I was true out at 20. I think, I don't know what came in and threw me out, but it didn't matter. I had gone into the charts. It, it worked. I was in the charts. So I had a chart record. I could go out then and try and do something. And then then was the start of, you know, trying to put a band on the road. And what all did that entail? Like who who does that? Do you have to go around? It's like yeah. one of them movies, the eighty movies, dun, 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 and you're doing all this meeting guys, and they're coming in and they're eccentric, and you go, nope. I put yes, an ad on the Sunday nope. World. Put an ad in the Sunday World. This was me now myself. I had nobody <clears> help me on Shea. I put an ad in the Sunday World. I said I was going to be auditioning people for a band in the Tullamore Harriers uh, in County Offaly on such and such a date. Phone the house at home. So I got. Mostly local fellas. I was very lucky. I got some very, very nice lads and young lads. And um, my first band consisted of all local chaps. And I, was to, I wanted to launch the band on the 14th of May, 1989. That was the launch date for the band at the Tullamore Harriers. But it would have been a year now before the single was released. You know, it was, this was all a work in progress. So the launch date was the Tullamore Harriers on the 14th of May. The next thing then, I got a phone call from uh, Big Tom's manager to say that the Travellers, Big Tom and the Travellers were part and company, and the Travellers were looking for a front man. And I fitted the bill. And would I be interested in the job? Just to say no. Travellers was the name of the band. It's yeah. not. 
And I, actual... oh, but this would have been a big, big thing. And I said, well, of course, I mean, I wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth and they were going to give me a good week's wages and all that sort of thing. But I would just be the front man. I wouldn't have anything got to do with the band. Yeah. So there was two guys in for the job. There was me and Joe Murray from, from Monaghan. And Joe Murray got the band, got the job. And I said, right now, full steam ahead to do my own thing. So next thing anyway, a couple of weeks later, uh, I got a phone call from Kieran Cavanagh Promotions in Dublin through Shea Hennessy that Johnny Cash was coming over to Ireland to do a nationwide tour and they needed a special guest support act and would I be interested in doing it? So I did. I played in Castlebar. That was my first day. First day with the band was Castlebar. Then we did Holy Cross in in uh, Tipperary and the Olympian Dublin. What was it like meeting him? Brilliant. What was lovely he man. And his wife, June. And did you chat with him much? Oh, yeah. He was lovely. He was really, really nice. Did you sing with him? No. Would was you no. like to? I would love to have had, but we, we didn't think we'd even get to meet him, you see, because I, I, what happened was they were in separate dressing rooms to us all. They, they, they were different. They were superstars. I mean, Johnny Cash, Christ, you know, to even see him. I mean, I remember I had done my bit on stage. My, I came out first and did six or eight songs. So I went stage left, waiting for Johnny Cash's band to come on stage, and they were sort of warming up and all the rest. And the next thing, somebody tipped me on the shoulder. I turned around, it was Johnny Cash standing behind me. And he said... Uh, that was a good show, young man. I says, thank you. He says, and I see you recorded one of my songs. I said, which one was that? <laughs> the clue. No way. He said, don't step on Mother's Roses. I wrote that. I didn't know. Imagine me not even knowing they wrote it. <laughs> and I said to him, I kept looking at him, well, uh, I didn't know that. And he says, no, very good. Now he said, keep on. Sure, we'll be meeting now, he said, over the tour. Introduced me to his wife and the band and the next, that, that, that evening. And uh, he was really, really Did nice. Did you learn a lot from him? Ah, yeah. But sure, yeah. Was yeah. the band on another level? Oh, the band was on another level. Ah, God. They were just, I mean, a big brass section. And, you know, and once he took to that stage, my God, the presence was just, I mean, the hair would stand on the back of your neck. He was just so good. And he was such a big, tall man, you know. And he looked the part. I'll tell you, once you saw Johnny Cash, you didn't forget him. Yeah, that was the type of guy that he was. So you started the band. Hmm. When did you realise, oh my God, I've, I've met it no, as a country I, star? No. It actually went pear-shaped after my first night. Really? Yeah. I launched a band in the Tullamore Harriers. Um, now, going back slightly, before I put the band together, I needed sound and lighting and I needed somebody to do sound at the big night, the Tullamore Harriers. So Paddy Nolan from Castle Pollard was doing all the sound for Daniel O'Donnell. And Daniel said to me, approach Paddy. He's a very nice man. And I said to Paddy, Paddy, I want to hire in a PA for the night. Would you be interested? I, no problem. He said, Sean, I'll do that for you. And he sent over a sound man, lighting and all that. And he said, and I'll supply a PA to you for the jury, like for when you start your band and all that sort of thing. And I had a, I can't remember what sort of transport I had at the time or had I any, some old van I had anyway for transporting the PA around. So we launched the band in the Tullamore Harriers on the 14th of May and we closed the doors. It was absolutely jammed. Now at this stage, I had packed in my one-man show because I couldn't go back hmm. because my record company had told me, if you go back, you, you have to know you're at this level where you have to go forward 
full steam ahead. So I remember I did the night in the Tullamore Harriers, paid the boys, paid Paddy Nolan, paid everybody. And I looked, I had a good bit of money. I can't remember how much it was, but I know it was a good bit of money for me. I never would have saw that much money in my life. And I said to myself, you know, God, if I go out and all these nights are going to be like this, I'm going to be a fucking millionaire. <laughs> don't <laughs> time. So my second date then was the following week at the County Arms in Borough. Four people. What? <laughs> Four people turned up for the show. And that was Mammy and Daddy and somebody else. Two other people. I looked down the hall and I says, oh, flip. Did you play? Oh, yeah. We went on and we played. The boys played and all that. And I said, what am I going to do? So we'd done another couple of dates and they were all disasters. Absolute disasters. And I said to myself, oh, Christ. Have I not made one big, big, huge mistake, you know? So I, I, I decided then, I was hiring this PA from Paddy Nolan. After a few weeks, I had no money to pay him. I had no money coming in. I was lucky I was living at home. No, that's all right. So it was no big deal. And, you know, but like, mommy and daddy wouldn't have known any of this. Like, they would have thought, I wouldn't have told them when you'd be having bad nights. So I would, the phone calls were coming from Paddy Nolan looking for money for his PA. Sean was avoiding the phone calls. So the next thing, anyway, um, I said, I have to pluck up the courage. I'm just going to have to face this head on, you know? So I rang up Paddy Nolan. He says, uh, well, what's wrong? I said, Paddy, it's a dad. I, I know that, he says. But he said, well, you, I said, when I met you, he said, Sean, a few months ago, I took a liking to you. There's something about you, he said, that I like. Would you come over and have a meet, have a chat with me? I said, where's this going now, you know? So I went over to Pat's big house in Castle Pollard, brought me into the living room. And he says, um, I'd be interested, he said, in helping you. I said, what do you mean helping you? Well, I'll put a van on the road, he said, a wagon. No, it was a, a personnel wagon and a van and a PA. I don't want anything for it, he said. I'll help you out. I have property in Dublin. I'll put a manager into an office and we'll get you going. I said, what? And he said, I'll put you on a week's wages. So I didn't know whether to believe this or whether this lad was pulling me leg or what the story was. So I, um, I said, well, sure. I may go with it, like, and see how it goes. Contracts were signed and bits and pieces like that, and uh, everything was great. And all of a sudden then, that was it. And what was the difference? They were promoting it. Yeah, the difference was I had a manager, a guy who knew the venues, knew where to put me, knew the people that were running them, knew the right people. Um, I knew I was going out then for weekends. I was lifting some money, you know, I was getting money which meant that I could pay my... Like I had at that time, I had four lads in the band, a sound man and a light man. So there was five, there was four and two is six, myself is seven and the manager is eight. So there was nine people really on the payroll with Paddy Nolan included. And how many nights a week did you play? We were working four, five, then it turned into, oh, the two, England just took off then really quickly and Scotland and I was away for maybe six, seven months of the year. So how busy did it actually get? Too busy. Like you were out all year. We were out very, we're, it, it really went well in the UK and Scotland. We struggled at home. You know, there's no point in me saying, but we were doing, like we'd, we'd be working at home as much as any other band, but I was finding it hard to, 
just get over that that hump of just being, you know. Did, as, uh, did, did you find it hard go from just tipping around home to being constantly gone? Oh yeah, yeah. And like, so. did you find it hard to? Like, was it a big transition between like you were you were the person at the top of the queue mm-hmm. with people every night? Mm-hmm. So, what were your hours? What I found very hard when I started. I know you probably wouldn't believe this, but I would be shy by this position in certain ways. I wouldn't be the sort of person now that would be, you know, I wouldn't be very good at pushing myself forward. And sometimes you have to be like that in business to get on and even in the entertainment business and be full of, the, you know, you know the type of thing I'm mm. talking about, full of, what would I call it, talk to talk and walk to walk, you know, that sort of thing, where I would have been quite shy. But I learned very quickly, you know, that meeting and greeting people, you know, hugging people, giving people, you know, ladies kisses and all that. That was totally alien to me, David, you know, to to do stuff like that. Because I felt that, you know, you don't, you know, this is very, Mm. very familiar, you know, but but it's part of what you do. You know what I mean? And and I have to say, no, I I enjoyed it. I, I didn't, I enjoyed being away because we were very busy and working all the time. And I'd, I'd like to have been busier when I was at home in Ireland, you know what I mean? But we would have been averaging, we'll say, in the 80s and the 90s as a band, five nights a week on average through the whole year. That was our workload. Did you take any holidays? We took three weeks a year, uh, two at Christmas and one in the summer. And, and I always made sure, you know, that, I, well, at that time before I got married, that really didn't matter. But, you know, it was it was full steam ahead then, you know. So how many albums have you released? I have 25 albums, seven DVDs, and this will be 26. What's your highest chart? What do you mean? Oh, well, I I was very lucky then I recorded a song in the early eight, in the early 90s called Five Little Fingers, which went into the pop charts as well. And it went in at Christmas. And I had to fly back. I was overworking in Inverness. I was doing a concert tour in Scotland. And my manager phoned and said, you have to be back in Dublin in the morning for nine o'clock. Your song has gone in at number 15 in the charts. And you have to come back to do a video at RT for it to go on the reel. You know, the, the mm. pop chart thing. I said, you're bloody joking. No, he said, you have to come home. And I remember I had to cancel the next night. I had to fly back into Dublin, did the video in the snow around RTE <laughs> and fly back that evening. And then everybody watched. So I, I was, but it was, it was a great thrill to get. So I had two chart songs. And you done uh, Saturday night, what was it? Kenny Live or? My- what were they like doing it? They were lovely. Well, RTE, in fairness now, we did so many things on RTE, the like of the Live at Trees, uh, Kenny Live. We were, I'll tell you how Kenny Live happened. We were playing in Wexford one night in a pub, a big pub in Wexford, in Ferns in County Wexford. And there was these two lovely girls sitting at the front of the stage all night. Now, youngish, you know, they were youngish girls. And one of them walked up and said to me, um, have you done much TV? And I said, well, we've done a bit, Live at Tree and stuff like that. Well, we're from the Kenny Live Show. Uh, we're producers on the Kenny Live Show and we'd, we'd love to have you as to open the next season. And I looked at her and said, now I said to myself, pull the other one, there's fucking legs on it, bells on it, you know. Didn't believe her for a start. Have you a phone number? So I gave her Bob's phone, my manager's phone number. <clears throat> and the following week, right enough, they rang me. I was opening the new season. 
and I sang a song called In Your Heart. Did did you make a lot of money back in the day? Was there a lot of money going around? We we made a lot of money and spent it and spent a lot of money and wasted a lot of money. But that's no, it's not. I can I'm, always remember as a a chap. Yeah, you know, I remember you coming home with that one ninety. With the, the side skirts. Mercedes, yes, yes. And at the time, there was like, there was nothing like that around. No. And that's on a video. You, you released yeah, a video. Yeah, my very first video. We did uh, Terrence Mint. Terrence, is that what it is in? Yes. Terrence Mint. That was a lovely car. I, I was, I was sorry. After, myself and my wife were sorry we sold that car. And it had a beautiful reg on it called CIL 600. That was the, which the registration was worth a lot of money as well. And I remember when I got that car, I mean, it was a, it was a beautiful car mm. for the time, you know what I mean? But I, you know, I suppose we'll go into me moving up north and all that later on. But I, when, you, when you went up north, cars were a bit cheaper. And but did you feel like, when did you feel like when you came home and people actually realised, that oh, I didn't have to go down the road of timber, I, I met it at what I wanted to make it at? Did you ever reach that point? Or were we always too busy just in the midst of doing what you were doing I never really thought of it did it no, ever it? when did it turn into just a job did you ever it's get never, to the stage where you never got turned, sick of it? no it's never turned into a job did you never not like it no I always love it always yeah um, maybe four or five years ago you know you, you, as you get a bit older travelling and that is I, I love singing and I love entertaining people and I love having the crack with people but the travelling can get fairly monotonous now, you know. But I remember it was nice to come home and I always loved coming home to play at home. And the, the only venue that I would have played when I then would have been the Hazel in Monaster Evan. And that would have been the local one, do you know? And I always used to say, oh God, I hope I get a crowd in here now tonight. If I don't get a crowd in here now tonight, I'm going to look like a right gobshite, you know, because you're, you're, you're home. Mm. Or even Racket Hall and places like that, you know. So... I know, listen, it was, it was lovely to be able to go out and do something that was on a bloody phone. Oh, right? typical. Typical <laughs> and I didn't even know I had my phone. And he's me. unprofessional. Oh, jeez. Here, Manny. Manny. <laughs> give me that. Give me that. Give me, give me, give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Give me that. Look, it's the oldest phone I've ever seen. How are you, ma'am? You know, Mammy, we're right in the middle of a podcast and you're ringing. You're live on the podcast now. Oh, oh my goodness. I didn't that. <laughs> <laughs> that was very unprofessional of you. I didn't even know. I forgot. I told you. I never told just told just, just ringing Sean. Quick question. Me. Quick question. Who do you love more, me or Sean? <laughs> Myself. <laughs> Good answer. We'll, we'll ring you after, ma'am. All right, love you more than Sean does. Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. Turn it off, you bollocks. Mammy, you know, my mammy rings me every when I was on tour, mammy would ring every single night. Every night? Every single night. At what time? Or I'd ring her. Oh, one, two. But didn't matter what time. And daddy would be there as well, and the two of them would be all chatting. But together. she was so proud of you. Ah, Do you yeah. know when you've done the tours and you go to Scotland? But you, I remember you and, and Gareth yeah, we used to coming go. on tour with us. Yeah. And you Easter. were two mad jokes. You, I don't know why you did that. That why? was a horrible bad decision. Why? Because we were so bored. They were, you just have no idea <laughs> what they go up to. 
I mean, they used to travel around in the car with me, you know, and I used to say, could we even give them tranquilizers or, or something just to calm them down? And Mammy would be saying, oh, but they're so good. Do you remember how much of a prick you are? Like, you used to, you, you, you were gone all the time. So, and then when you did come home, right, Mammy... The perfect son was coming home. <laughs> Maybe once a month, it, you come home, you'd be after, Mammy would be after telling us for three days, right, Sean's in London tonight, he's in Glasgow tomorrow, he's in Donegal tomorrow, and then he's playing in Cahersveen in Cork, and he's going to be home late. Don't wake him. If you wake him, and he, you'd, there'd be no sign of him. You'd never hear from him. He'd be asleep, and next thing, he'd just come downstairs around 10, 11 o'clock. Mammy would make him his food, and he'd come in and just bathe. I never did. You did. You did. You, did. you have my microphone turned off. You, you used to beat it. No, I didn't. No, I'll tell you what I used to do with you. I used to give you an odd slap in the arse when you'd go in and they'd be swinging out the chandeliers. Well, I mean, you have to do something. Well, Mammy should have known better <laughs> to have notions and have chandeliers around us. Right. Well, no, the word chandeliers, but was, like the light fittings. It was totally uncalled for. No, in fact, I'll tell you. No, I won't say what I was going to say. No, go on, go on, go on. I don't, mind. I don't think you've gotten half enough. <laughs> <laughs> but as we got older, we realised you were just, you were, uh, you were more house proud than the rest of us. You were living at home and you wanted everything nice. You were, you're very um, OCD on stuff. Do you think I am? Ah, come on. You are. Why? Well, you're kind of like me with your car. You like everything clean. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but you're, you're extremely house proud. No, I wouldn't Like, say you're I'm the only extremely. person I know that has a good room. <laughs> you're the only person in our generation that has a good room. No. Sean has a good room. Sean is, <laughs> Sean, <laughs> Sean has a good room. You, you walk into your mansion, right? It's not a mansion. Have you lines that you're gay? No. Have you, you have lines at your gay. I don't have lines at the gay. You have concrete lines at your gay. No, no. Sean, you do. You have concrete lines at your gay, a massive big drive, and then you walk into your fucking mansion house, and then on the right-hand side, little signs up, no entry. <laughs> and it's a, a fucking good room. No, no. With gold room. everywhere. And, and red stuff and, and all your awards. <laughs> you have a good well, all room. All my awards have been banished to the garage. Have they? <laughs> yeah, my wife got sick looking at them. <laughs> but she said to me, you have a room out there. I, I, I have a garage and I, I converted it upstairs. She said, put all that stuff out into the room. Now I kept me discs and things in the, in the living room, a few things like You that. have your golden discs? Yeah. Come here, what's your most, the, your favourite gig that you ever played? Oh dear. Can you remember one that was just mental? Like the biggest crowd or just the most mental crowd or one that you got like, I don't know, emotional or whatever it is? That's a, that's a hard question. I, I have to say the Fairfields Halls in Croydon, it holds four and a half thousand people. And when I went and worked with Foster and Allen, that was probably the one of the biggest gigs. It was mad, you know. And did you like playing the Galtimore? Oh, yeah, I love the Galtie. But then the Galtie was a different... The Galtie was so, so cool. I In mean, Cricklewood? Oh, I mean, you had three ballrooms. You had Ashton's, which was a disco. Then you had the old Galtie. And then you had the room that held about five and a half, six thousand people. And a big balcony all around the stage. And the band, the people could walk around and look down on the yeah. band. It was a very cool, cool place. And I played there in the in the... Well, in the fairly good years, I was very lucky because I came on the scene when the thing was f quite good. So it meant that a lot of people did hear me. And, and you were one of the first. 
Well, I wasn't one of the first. The big Toms and all them were one of the first, you know. But I was lucky because I came in at an era, in, into an era when there was people still going out dancing a lot, you know. And I, I you know, if I was to think back on the fantastic nights we had over the years, you know, and really, really lovely people that we've met. And, you know, it's, 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 it's great to think about it even still, you know. So you don't have one in particular? Not really, no. I suppose <clears throat> there's times. Now, I still play. I played only last Wednesday night in a little village hall uh, in a place called Buxton over in England, in, in, in Yorkshire, not that farm where they make Emmerdale. And we went in and played in this little village hall. And it reminded me so much of, you don't remember Camaros Old Hall, the no. old hall in Camaros. Well, it was just like that. It was just like stepping back 50 years. Have you been in every village in England? I've been in a lot of them. Yeah. Do you, I lo- do you like I ha- the cruises? Uh, yeah, they're, they're okay. They're okay. Did you find it difficult or was it scary back when you were going up the north during the troubles and stuff? Mm. I remember the first time that we played in Northern Ireland was in a place called the Castle Inn in Dungiven in Derry. And my keyboard player at the time, he was from Tullamore, Bathan Bolton was his name. And Bathan was sick, physically sick, the whole way up the road, worrying about going over the border at Achnatloy. I wasn't too happy about it myself, but we had to do it. Because I remember, you know, when I was very young, I used to go around on the lorry with John Mooney. And we used to go up to Green Ore and different places like that with timber. And we would avoid, the, we wouldn't drive in over the border. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And uh, I remember driving in then. And we got through, and I mean, the people were lovely. And then all of a sudden, then I end up meeting somebody up there and living married. up there. Married into him. Yeah. Can I ask a question on that point? Mm. Because there's something you mentioned earlier, um, I think it was 81, you said when you mm. seen Daniel O'Donnell was uh, starting first in Harriers. Yeah. You mentioned that there was a lull in that type of music mm-hmm. and it was in my mind. Was that because of the Miami show band massacre or did that have anything? Well, it did have a bit got to do with it now and a lot of the Irish bands stopped going up north at that time. They were terrified like. I mean, listen, I'm not political in any way. And I don't care what anybody is and I don't care what anybody's beliefs are or anything like that. Because I think we're all the same, really. You know, just we may have a different opinion on certain things. But when I went into the North, when you when you play in Northern Ireland and even live in Northern Ireland, really and truly, you keep your opinions to yourself because you're doing a job as an entertainer and a singer. So that's your job and that's what you do. And you don't, I mean, to me, I don't care who I play for. I'll play in um, a GA hall. I'll play in a Freemasons hall. I'll play in an Orange hall. I'll play, and I do, I play in all them halls. And I find all them people really, really lovely. What was the terrifying point about Northern Ireland for me was the security forces. You know, when you went into Northern Ireland, I mean, you could be pulled into the shed there and they could hold you for as long as they wanted. Any little thing they could find on you, they would hold you. Did they ever do a cavity search on you? No. <laughs> no, nothing. No, but they would be quite... Um, Invasive. Not nice. Would, that, you ever, would they ask you to take your trousers off, Ren? Oh, no. Oh, God, no, no. Not like no that. Fun. No, no fun in that, no. No, but like, you know, you were at their mercy. And the other thing that you had to get used to about Northern Ireland was the checkpoints and the stoppages and where are you going and all this sort of thing. And they're very, very intimidating. 
You know, if you have eight or nine show- soldiers standing around your van or your car at four o'clock in the morning. I was with you a few times in England and they, the police had pulled you over going into London and mm-hmm. emptied the van. And yeah. You know, and you telling me, don't you start laughing at them? Don't no, you say one word? But, I'm warning you, David. But then I remember, you know, when I when I moved into the north, I remember, you know, mommy and daddy, you know, when when. But well, suppose I, tell everyone you you met a woman up the north. Yeah, Roberta. Was she a groupie that no, you married? She wasn't. Tell the truth now. Met Roberta. Would you have had, had screaming women? Oh, wow. Pegging knickers and all that. Back. No, we never had. You did throwing a knickers at me. No, no. Brass. Well, I wouldn't mind them throwing a preventative clean. I'm worried. Well, I'd wear it where I was clean, you know. And why did you pick hers? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, stop now. That's terrible. I remember how, how it was an accident meeting Roberta, really. She did you meet her at a gig? She shouldn't have been there. And if, if she was telling you the story now today, it's a story, I'll probably, I'll tell you the story. Yeah. Roberta and her sister Claire were huge fans of the Memories show band. Did you ever hear the Memories show band? They were a huge you, pop band. You did? Yeah. The, the memories, memories. The memories. They were a huge pop band in Ireland at the time. And well, the girls it. loved them. And they always went to see them wherever they were around Tyrone and Derry and places like that. So the memories were to be playing in the Lake of Shadows in Buncrana on this Saturday night. And Roberta and Claire were going down to see them. And I was playing at the, uh, the Blackthorn Ballroom Bridgend, County Donegal, just outside Derry. Right. So there was these two ladies from Lifford who had saw me on Kenny Live and different, and they wanted to come and see this new guy, Sean Cuddy. So they asked Roberta, would they drop them? And Roberta said, well, sure, we're on our way to Buncrana. So we'll drop you off at Cuddy and we'll go on to the dance and we'll pick you up on the way home. Because they weren't interested in country music. They couldn't stand it. So when they arrived over to the Lake of Shadows in Buncrana and they were walking up to Pedro Money on the door. The guy said in the door, the memories are not here tonight. Jim Barry is not well, the front singer. So it's Susan McCann is in, in, in their place. And Roberta said, well, we're not going into here, Susan McCann. So we'll go back to that new Cuddy guy and we'll join Gracie and Josie at the dance. So they come into the dance and at the end of the night, do you know the way people talk to people? I was chatting to people at the front of the stage and I saw Roberta and Claire and I think Glenn Flynn was in the band at the time and Glenn and a couple of the other boys were down talking to the girls at the table. So I, Julie, said, well, God, I must go down and see who these boys are talking to, you know. So I went down. Sean's seen the hot women. <laughs> well, we saw the girls. Made a beeline. And I went down and I said to them, well, do you enjoy the show? And Roberta just looked at me and went, she didn't say yes or no. She just went, <laughs> made a sort of a face. So I said, God, she's a sour yoke. That's what I actually said to myself. And that Claire was, Claire was all jolly and jumping around and all that sort mm. of thing. So now at that time, my management didn't want me really to have girlfriends because it would Wreck affect, the illusion. Yeah. Load of shade. Really? Was that what they said oh, to you? Well, it weren't, no, they said that, you know, you're better to look single and, you know, not be attached. Yeah. It was, you know, to get... I know, I know. You know, that sort of thing. So... I hadn't, I wasn't going out with anybody or anything like that. I had been in a relationship for over five years and it was broke up and whatever. And um, I chatted to the girls anyway, into my car, went home. No, we were actually staying up north that night because we were playing at another gig in Northern Ireland the next night. That's why you were asking that. No, no, no. So that was okay. A couple of weeks passed, maybe three weeks, and I was playing in Donegal 
up in a place called the Border Inn in Castlefin. I only live up the road from there now. Mm. This is, it's amazing, you know, the way the way life throws things at you and the way your life goes. And I was playing in the Border Inn and Roberta and her sister Claire brought Josie and Gracie again to the dance. And I said to myself, these two now are either into the band or they're just bringing the two women. So at the end of the night, I went down and I was chatting to them and I said to Roberta, I said, what do you work at? And she told me what she worked at and whatever. And I said, well, could I have your phone number? And she just looked at me as if I had 10 heads. She did give me her phone number. And the rest is history. Were you really like a... Smooth back no. then. No, like you, but I'm like, not like that. because you, you, you always dress. You like you always dress really well. Like you'd always be giving out to us for not dressing well. I never give out to you for not dressing well. You, you've on many, many occasions told me I should be wearing suits. Oh no, not so much suits. But you said to me today when you rang me up this morning about the podcast. I was you, really I hoping like that you'd wear a tux, <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't have surprised me if you uh, did. No, I'm not that fat. You barely own a jeans. Uh, oh, I do. I do own jeans. I do wear jeans. You, you, I, I've you never, dress very suave. I don't wear tracksuit bottoms or anything like that. No. No. I wear them out when I'm going out to the dogs. And so <laughs> you end up married. Or for a walk or something You got like married. That. Yeah. You had kids. Yeah. Was it difficult, you know, working and having kids and... Ah, uh, listen. It and, was, and deciding to move away from everyone. And it was hard. Like, listen, to be married to somebody like me, is very, very difficult. And Roberta, in fairness to her, you know, she, she worked and she reared the two kids, you know, in most times herself. Now, when I was home, I was home. And I never went or done anything. I'd be there all the time to help as much as I could. But the original plan, you see, was that we were going to live in Northern Ireland for five years in Strabane. And then I was going to come back and build a house build a house actually where you're building your new house mm. in time to come. That was where I was, well, it was where Barry built. Barry, where Barry built. And I was going to build a house and we had plans all picked, everything done, um, mortgage and everything practically all done through. And I was going away for three weeks tour and I said to Roberta, I was going out the door, I said, Roberta, you have to send a check down to this guy to do a survey on the site and blah, blah, blah. I had moved our furniture to Martinez. We had moved everything, physically mm. moved it. And um, that was grand. And we were moving in with Maggie until we were going to do that. We had sold our other house. And the next thing, anyway, uh, I was away for a couple of weeks and Roberta rang me and she says, oh, I said, did you send that thing for me? And she never answered. I saw a house in Donegal. I said, right. I, I think we might buy it. I said, but we're supposed to be moving to Leash. Ah, but my mother doesn't want me to move to Leash. <laughs> And instantaneously, I said to myself, well, it's very important that Roberta has to be happy where she is. Because after all, she was looking after the kids. I was away. And it was important for her to be around her own people and, you know, around the one. Not saying <clears throat> there's times we, we, we think, you know, what would have been if we had moved down here? You know, who knows? You know what I mean? But we didn't, and... Do you ever feel that, I know, I robbed your son on you? Pardon? I robbed your son on you. Like, I took Sean, brought him under my wing, taught him how to be a forward driver. You did? You, you were probably hoping that he'd be something else. No, do you know, I, I, Sean, my, my son Sean, and indeed my daughter Amy, they're two very good kids. I call them kids now, but Sean's a man and Amy's a woman. But Sean surprised me to no length, 
to be reared up at home where he would have never seen a tractor. He would have never, well, he would have been out in Pat McGrath's farm maybe a bit and things like that. But for him to leave a job in... I turned him. In, in what would we call it? He was working in, in retail in and retail. he was modelling in yeah. his spare time. Modelling, yeah. And I, um, I and robbed he, him. And he was I in felt the band he, with me and so were you. I felt he needed... Hey. A strong male role model in his you life. Were, <laughs> you were in the well. Now we're looking for a, a strong male model or role. <laughs> roll over, bitch. But over. hey, some man to take to it. Yeah, listen. When you see Sean is the type of chap, you know, he 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 made up his own mind. He decided when he left school, he went to college for a while, and he just came home to himself and Roberto one evening, and he said, "I don't want to go back there." Well, I said, what do you want to do? I'm going to work. I said, well, if you want to work, you work. So he started working in the band with me. You worked in the band I with me for a while as well. Yeah. And he was there for about six months and he said to me, coming home the road one day, Daddy, I have enough of this. I just can't handle this traveling anymore. I'm going to get a job. So he got a job in McElhenney's. And then I suppose with listening to you and listening to the boys and coming down here for weekends and all that sort of thing, he did really like coming down to Leash. He loved Leash and he loved coming down. And he loved, I think, the big machine thing and the fact that this was a big deal to him, you know. Mm. And he said, Daddy, I wonder would I be able to learn how to drive one of them machines? And I looked at him and I said, Jenny, Sean, I don't know. Do you think you would? I think I would. Could you ask the boys, would they give me a show? I said to myself, God, am I, you know, I, I, I rang, was it Barry and John? I said it to Barry and John, would they give me? And I know Barry and John probably said to themselves. So he was after spending a couple of holidays with me. Yeah. And sat in the machine with me. Yeah, and he, and he wanted it. But you know, the big motivation with Sean too was. Money. <laughs> yeah. Well, money is a big, uh, you know, not saying money is not the be all and end all of life, but it's a handy thing when you go into a shop. It's handy. Right? Yeah. So he wanted to do this and you know, he has taken to it like a duck out of, in, in water, like he really mm. did. And he, he loves it. And, you know, he was even telling me there the other day, he's getting another new machine now, I think, fairly shortly. And he's... he's and I'd say he's after firing a good bit of abuse at you for not coming onto the podcast soon. Yeah, well, I'm after getting a good bit of abuse from him and from Barry and from Greg and from the whole... And one thing of it, it's grand, isn't it? It's, it's just very, a chat. It's very, good. It's very good. Did you now, ever you know? think when in our life that I'd be doing what I'm doing? Well, I knew you'd be doing something different. I knew it wouldn't be normal. <laughs> <laughs> but the entertainment industry is fair fake, isn't it? It is fake. Like, it's like you have to play a game or you don't get to play. Well, it, you see... You play by their rules. I'm not a fake person. No. I am what I am. Like, what, what would you have to do to get your... Like nowadays... In this modern age, yeah, to get records. I don't, I don't do anything now anymore to get records paid. I, the way I look at it is, if they don't want to play it, we'll feck him. Do you know what I mean? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 34 years now going around doing what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, I've survived up to this. You know, I, it annoys me at times, you know, when you see certain things going on in our business. You know, for instance, I, the Late Late Show and stuff. I never got the Late Late. I was asked to do the Late Late twice. And the spots that they offered me were 10 seconds. Well, I decided I'd be better off playing at a gig as going down to RTE to sit in a seat and then be called up at the last minute. I, 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 think, I think the whole business, you know, 
is unfair to a point for, for new artists and people that are trying to come up and people that have been around a long time, you know. I think that everybody deserves a good crack of the whip, regardless of what they're doing. And I think that people, you know, they should be given more of a chance. Now, that's not me being gripey or anything like that, because I've, I've done okay. I've made a living. I've enjoyed it. I've met lovely people. I've, you know, I've met a lot of stars. I've met people like Cliff Richard. Um, what was he like? Cliff was a gentleman. I've done a few gigs with Cliff because I work with Daniel a good bit, you see, in England, and we do bits and pieces. Is Daniel a good friend of yours? Yes, he is, yeah. Would you talk too much? We would talk quite regular, yeah. What would you think the chances of um, getting him down here onto the podcast would be? He's actually one of the, I'd love to have, chat with him. Well, I will ask. I would say he probably would do it. He'd be great crack. He would be. He is good crack. He's a very, very... I've met him, like, when... Yeah, you have we met me on the appreciation. Yeah. He's a very, very nice fella. And the other thing about Daniel O'Donnell, you know, and something that people don't... Daniel is Daniel. He, that's the way he is. That is not false, or that's not put on. He is a very genuine, nice fella. He has never... I have never heard that man saying a bad word about anybody. He was very nice to our mother. Very good to man. And, you know, and very fond of daddy. Mm. I mean, he, you know, he used to call to the house and things yeah, like yeah. that. And I can imagine it was good with my father, you know. Mammy used table. to say on the days Daniel was there that I was not called off. Well, <laughs> well, that, well, daddy even said, I hope David doesn't call <laughs> because that would have been. <laughs> yeah, that's the one day I get a phone call, I go, don't, just don't come up. Just don't come up. You'll make everything awkward. Yeah, but he, he'd be very, very clever and he's very good to talk like that, you know. Who's the biggest dickhead that you've met? You? <laughs> Other than me. I know, I'm only joking. Other than uh, me. No, I can't say that I've met... What would you say? Is a, I've met not nice people. Yeah, go on, give us a name. Ah, no, no, I wouldn't like to give names. Does it rhyme with uh, who? I can't, I don't know anyone. No, you don't. No, listen, most of the people in our business are very, very nice. But, you know, I, I, I would like if the Irish artists would probably treat their counterparts the way the Americans treat theirs. The American, the American country singers and musicians and all You've that. You've played in Nashville, haven't you? No, I've never did. I've 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 used people to play on albums from Nashville and that, but I've never never gone, you know. But I think, you know, that people need to be more kind to one another and help one another. What advice would you give to someone that would like to get into music now? Or are you so far removed from it in this day and age? Oh, that I you don't couldn't? know. It's 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 so different now. It is so different to start. You see, number one there isn't the amount of venues that we used to have. I mean, we had a scene, David, which meant that you had you had venues that you could go to and you could um, play in every week. You had three, four nights a week. That's all gone. Now, there's a great scene at the moment of social dancing where you could go with an iPad, your backing tracks, and tear away and go. And that is really, really good. Because I can remember, you know, somebody saying to me back <clears throat> after the pandemic, I not go out and do I've done all that I've worked on my own and I, I, I'd love to, I'd love to have somebody beside me to have a bit of crack with and have a bit of chat but the money isn't there you know to, to a sort of 
do all that. So now I have a lot of stuff coming up in the next while. I'm in the Tullamore Court now for my, my 60th birthday there, the 17th of May. It's a Wednesday night and I have special guests, Susan, uh, Philomena Begley and Declan Nerney and Owen Mack. And I'm doing a date then in the, where, la, 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 Dunamis, back in the Dunamis on the uh, 15th of September with Paddy O'Brien and John Hogan. And then I've been invited to Camros doing a big concert in Camros on the 10th of December for Father Brian. It's going to be a huge night. Shout out to Father Brian. Yes, and say hello to Father. A lovely, lovely man he is. And if you're a fan club gathering next week, don't you? Yep, up to Dublin, up to Donegal next week for me. Four nights sold out. That's my 20, no, 32 years of bringing people to Ireland. How many have, what's the most you've brought? Brought. Well, we'd usually have about 500. 500 people from all over. Scotland, England, Shetland, Orkney, everywhere. What's the hardest song to sing? You see, depends on what you, you know, my country songs for me, uh, sort of, that's what I love doing. Now I've, I've been a sort of, over the last couple of albums, my, my, my wife has a sort of, Roberta has a sort of said to me, you know, you need to push out the bow a bit now, Sean, and do something a bit different. Rap. <laughs> no. But I recorded a lovely song on my last album called The Older I Get. And it's um, an old Alan Jackson song. And I also recorded a Reba McIntyre number as well. He gets that from me, which are... That's a good song. Yeah, it's a lovely song. But That's if you song. said to me, David, six or seven years ago to do them sort of songs, first of all, my record company would have had a kitten because they'd say, where is this Egypt going? Because it's all about direction, you see, in our business. And, you know, you keep on your direction. I'm country and Irish. That's what I am. I do a bit of rock and roll. I know my vocal capacities. I'm not. I'm Don't I'm be modest now. I'm an okay singer, but I'm not one of these lads that can get out and do real high operatic stuff. I'm not that type of singer. But I chance anything. Your Door Close Rise was a great song. Yeah, I've done that now in Opry, um, Opry Le Daniel on, the, on this serial. And, it's, it, and I couldn't believe it when they picked it. They rang me and said, would you do Don't Close Your Eyes? I said, I recorded that over 30 years ago. Well, they said, it's absolutely brilliant. And do you know what? The band was, it was a 10-piece band on the day. It's been shown now, I think, in July. It was just like the record. Really? And, oh, they were just outstanding. It Is it way more special playing with a huge band? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... I my. You love singing live, though. I do, I love singing live. My dream, I would love... I know I'd probably never get the opportunity. I'd love to sing with with the RT Light Orchestra. I'd love to do a few songs with them. Really? Yeah. Isn't that a funny one? No. Why, why don't you try? I, well, it's so. If expensive. anyone's listening, I would love work in the orchestra. Yeah, I'd love to play with the orchestra. Um, I remember Daniel telling me he did a whole album of gospel stuff with the Philomon. Praise Jesus! Yes. And it was brilliant. I got the arm. It was really good. I'd love to do something like that. Maybe. Never know. That's cool. Well, I know, Sean, I mean, no, it's been so hard to get you on. Mm-hmm. Right? I know I know you work hard and you're a little bit of a prick. So there's two of them things to go by. <laughs> but we booked this for half seven and then he rings me today. <laughs> the women are going out. <laughs> we have to do it earlier. And I had poor Matt here last night for ages. For ages. But would... Would you do me the solid, right, of, and this would be the first for the podcast, of just singing this, just, uh, just two verses of Roxanne. 
Are you joking? No, just for... Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, sure, if you want me to. You, you would. You, um, you, you've never done this... No, have you? But it, it should work perfect. We have spent enough money here that it should work fucking perfect. Well, I have to say, it's a, it's a grand setting. I, did I ever think I'd be doing a podcast in the old Brigidine Convent? No. I mean, it's unbelievable. I know. And like, uh, I, I built this, not just for doing my own podcast, but I wanted anyone to be mm. able to do a podcast. Yeah. And not have to cost me fortune. Mm-hmm. So like, you I'm, see, I'm bringing I, free speech to work, Sean. You see, I, again, I know where you're coming from with, with the free speech thing. And it's lovely to be able to come on and probably say things that you wouldn't normally say in a normal interview. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I mean, Do you know what I, the funny thing is? It's not even about saying what you, nasty things around. It's just talking. Mm-hmm. Nobody seems to want to just have, everyone wants these little, little bites. But you see, the problem the problem today, uh, when I was up in Derry there a few weeks ago, we were doing the, um, the Opry thing and I was speaking to another singer. And the problem is today, you have to be so careful about what you say and how you say it. Why? You know, because we don't want to, you know, you can offend people so easily now. But that's not, that's the person that gets offended for it. Yeah. But, but like, you're, you're, there's so many ways to offend someone now. Yeah. That if that's the case and if that's where we're going, we can't say anything. No. And if you're talking to 10 people, that's grand. You can say a lot of things without offending them. But if you're talking to like 25,000, there's mm. four God you can say. Mm. I think, you know, that, you know, society as a whole has got very, very sensitive about things that you could have said 10, 15 years ago and people would laugh at and they just have a bit of crack. You know, I wouldn't like to be a comedian today because what what do you talk about? What, what can you laugh at? I mean, the Irishman was the butt of every joke up to, you know, mm. no length to go. Now, you know, you can't, you can't say anything about anybody, but they, they get, I think that, you know, people are entitled to say what they, within reason, you know? No, I get you. You don't want to be inciting hatred no, you and you don't, don't want, want to be want nasty to, to anyone. But like, I mean, at the end of the day, if somebody does something and it's totally wrong, well, they should be pulled over the coals for doing stuff. I mean, mm. I, you know, I, I, I look at society today and I, I, you know, sometimes I wonder, you know, where, where we're going. You know, when you drive What annoys you the most? What annoys me the most is the fact, you know, that when you're driving through not so much in England, but in Ireland to a point, to pull up at a chip shop to go in for a bag of chips late at night without being given abuse and without, you know, people standing outside being totally disgusting. And I think that, you know, and I don't want to brand a certain age group or anything like that, but I think that people have lost a certain amount of self-respect well, they've lost respect for others and lost respect and lost for themselves respect for, and because lost nobody can for, be told anything. You know, lost respect for our our Garda, lost respect for our 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 priests, our our elderly. Um, you know, people wouldn't move out of your way. You know, it's just, and I I don't know. Is it me? Is it me? Thinks that I I don't think so. You know, and another thing that I that I can't understand is you go into a shop. I was in Port Leash today, took over Roberta and my and mammy, and we went into Penny's. I was looking around, and I went up to Penny's, and I was paying for the few things, and the girl never even looked at me. Not even as much as, hello. And you just sit back and you say to yourself, like, you know, what is gone wrong? 
how are these people getting these jobs? Because the first thing that you say to somebody is, hello, how are you? You know, and please and thank you. That's what I installed into my two. And, you know, I mean, I mean, I have a daughter, Amy, now, and Amy's gone off. She'll be, hopefully, God forbid, God, please, she'll be qualified. She's going to do in law. And she's in Belfast at the moment. And, uh, you know, she would tell you the same thing, that people out now, it's just a whole different ballgame. I wouldn't like to be going out now to nightclubs and stuff like that. No, neither would I. It's not civilised. Matt loves it. Matt goes out like seven nights a week. You know. And if it's quite around home, he'll go to London. But fair play to you, <laughs> if you can afford it. <laughs> but, it. But I don't know what you think of it, but, I, you know, and I, I, you know, I think that it's, it's awful sad, you know, when you think of people, old people in their homes, afraid to go outside yeah. and afraid to, it's, it's totally wrong. Now, as a younger person in the generation you're describing, I do, I do completely agree with you. Mm. I completely agree with what you're saying about self-respect for yourselves, yeah. respect for guards, respect for older people. It's awful. It's fucking gone. And mm. I would have been reared with that yeah. moral kind of yeah. thing. We would never, I mean, you would do the same. I mean, you'd have respect for people. In, you can, like, listen, the problem is nobody wants to face anybody in authority. They feel that they can do what they like. You can't do what you like. No, you yeah, yeah, everyone has to have personal everybody responsibility. Everybody has personal responsibility. I was often a dickhead and I often got a slap for it and I deserved it. Yeah, well, listen, do you know, in all my years going around, thank Except God, for you. you that never you ever happened. Never happened to me. You never got a slap? No. You were spoiled. I know I did. And when I was in Ballyfin, I was hung out through the top bedroom windows. By, by the legs. Name. By the By the bigger boys. Name. Oh, I can't remember their Go names. Go on, name the fuckers From the now. third story. That's fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm. But that was what you got when you went in first. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Fuck. But that was, you know, bullying. And that was just a fact of life in those places. But I have to say, you know... um, I never had a problem with the brothers or with any of them. They they were all they were all okay and the staff were fine and all that. But some of the bigger boys, they were all from Dublin and different other places and they were quite, you know, tough boys mm. to deal with, like, you know what I mean? And if you showed vulnerability at all, well, you got and I mean we were listen, there's no point in me sitting here and saying, Oh, school was a bundle of laughs. It was far from a bundle of laughs. And I remember when I came out as a boarder and I stayed then with my Aunt Margaret here in Mount Drath and it was grand because I took my bicycle up every morning then up to Ballyfin and, and went from there. It was fine. It was definitely easier when you got out those gates at night. But do you see in there, it was serious. You know, it was. It was, it was a different world, you know. And, you know. Would you consider yourself uh, mentally tough? Well, I don't know. I wouldn't be soft, if you know what I mean. I, I let t- things would get in on me. You know, I, I, I get very annoyed at um, just general disrespectful things. I get annoyed at that. Mentally, thank God, um, I, I, I feel fine and, and I always have. I wouldn't let things get me down too much. If I have a bad gig, I always say to myself, well, tomorrow night will be a better gig. Never look back. Never, never think of the bad things. You know, if people do bad things to you, and I've had people try to do bad things to me and, you know, you know, run you down and give you a hard time and all, but I don't care. You have to be like that. I think, you know, you know I, I would always say to, to my chaps at home, listen, 
get up and brush yourself off and move on. Forget about it. You know, people let, you, you let these things in, into your head and then you start suffering with mental health issues. It, it's all, you know, you have to just forget about them. You know, somebody said to me one time, you know, affect the big grudgers. And God knows we have plenty of them. But another way, you're a performer. Yeah. And you can perform. Mm. Can you turn it on and turn it off? Is it something that you've learned as a skill to turn it on and turn it off? Like, I, I'm not you. So people that don't know us think that me and you kind of uh, are very, very similar. They probably do, yeah. But I can't turn it on and off. You can't? No, I'm just d- doing me. Yeah. And it's only when, uh, at say, Dad's funeral, and like uh, you were able to do stuff I couldn't have done. Like, like at nice. the, at the, when you got up and spoke and then you had to sing, nah, fucking chance. I, I remember when, when Father Brian said that to me. Uh... You see, and we were just talking about that in the house the other night myself and Roberta. There's times I think that daddy's still alive. How? Is that because you're up the north? Yeah. And it's only, it's only when I come home, like when I went today to visit the grave with Mammy and Roberta, it's only when I come home and I read Jenny like... Or walking into the kitchen. He is dead, like, mm. you know. And the funeral was... It was tough now. Yeah, yeah. Like, I know what you're talking about, switching on and switching off. I said to myself, how am I going to get up here and say these few words and then go over and sing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I just. Because when, when, when the arrangements were being done and I was there thinking, I was like, ooh, that's a harsh one. Yeah. That, but that, that's tough now. I wanted to say a few words about daddy. You know what I mean? Like, daddy... Daddy was a very good father. Mm. But Daddy was a tough man in his own way. We didn't get that. No, he, he did. Was, no, no, not that he was. No, he wasn't tough in the in the sense that he was, that he was, abuse or nothing like that. But Daddy would have been the type he'd say, "Listen, you have to do your own thing." Yeah, yeah. You know, and he never ever would have said to me, "Or to Seamus, or to any of us," you know, "Oh, do this and do that." You know, this this what you. He, he was always 100% behind the music and all that. You just have to do something. Yeah, and he'd say to you, I'd say, whenever I'd be thinking of changing the van, for instance, or doing that and like that, which would be a big decision, you know what I mean? And he'd say to me, just go out and do it. Don't be thinking about it. Just do it. Yeah. You'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. Get, you know? get it anyway. You can't be thinking, yeah, get it anyway. <laughs> Don't be thinking about, you know, oh, maybe now I'll get sick and I won't be able to pay for it. Well, sure, they can't pay for it. They can take the feckin' thing back, yeah. you know. And in a way, I think that we're a sort of all like that. Yeah. We have that whole... Um, just do it. Just do it and get on with it. Like, you know Suck I mean? it and see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and you do have to do that. Now, listen, I probably am very like my father in some ways, but I'm more like Mammy. Mm. In a lot of ways, you know, and you're more like the heifer inside, Mammy's side, you know, and then the, the we'll say Barry and Greg and probably they're more like tougher men. They're daddy's side of the family. Yeah. You know what I mean? And don't get me wrong. I mean, daddy would he was he was the best in the world and all that. He wasn't a huggy wuggy kissy kissy father. He was never he wasn't like that. You know what I mean? Mm. Daddy, he, we knew he loved us anyway. We didn't need that. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not really. That type either. I mean, Sean and I and, and Amy, and we have a great relationship. But, you know, it's not all about that, you know, kissing and hugging. It's about them knowing. Yeah, it's a different kind of hug. Yeah. It's like uh, Ricky Gervais has a bit 
and um, he was explaining the different kind of emotional hugs that families have. Yeah. And he said it was at his father's funeral and his uncle and his brother were standing at the grave and his uncle was uh, smoking a fag. And he goes, Jesus, Jim, there's no point in you leaving. <laughs> you look shocking bad. <laughs> but that was their kind of emotional hug. Do you know? Because everyone has a different way of... Um, Everybody's different at, 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 at expressing their emotions. I... I I, I I wouldn't be fantastic. I'd be okay, but I wouldn't be. And I respect somebody that's able to talk about stuff like that. The cows come home because I wouldn't be just. You're a different generation, though. I'm a different. Like you're generation. a different generation than us. To you, generation. It's like I was all, like I would have went in, and I'd always been giving Dad an old hug and yeah. telling him I loved him. Yeah. See, we we're the we're the generation up, so we were slightly different. And even though Daddy and Mammy were very good to us and we, we got anything that we wanted, when Christmas came, you get everything that you got, whatever you wanted. And that was always the way in our house. But, like, it was different, you know, growing up in Leash back in the 70s and the 80s. Like, so it was different growing up everywhere in the 70s and 80s. It was different. It was a, like, Ireland wasn't what you call a very rich country. I mean, we didn't have a whole lot, but we had enough. We had enough. Hmm. And then for Mammy and Daddy, it was harder again for them. Do you know what I mean? But... You know, I always say that I think our grow, the growing up that we had and the influences that we had, like granny and granddad, the two granny and granddads would have had a big influence on us when we were kids. I mean, we were always down with granny and granddad and always down with granny and paddock as well. And the old people around us, I think, were were big influences. And people coming, you know that many people used to be coming around our house at home. Yeah, it was always full. It was always a very busy house and all that sort of thing. And we weren't what you'd call materialistic people. You know, I mean, Daddy had a Mercedes in the yard, but he wouldn't have cared too much about... <laughs> He'd put a round bale in the back of it. He wouldn't have given a fuck. He wouldn't care. He'd never wash it, it even. Like, I remember, you know, we were, were sitting at Mass one Sunday morning in Cyan Mills, Christmas morning, and Roberta was beside me and Sean and Amy were there. And um, I just sort of started to laugh to myself at something. And Roberta said to me, when she came out of church, what are you laughing at? What were you laughing at? Because you were laughing to yourself. I said, I'll tell you what I was laughing at, Roberta. I was laughing thinking you were telling me last night that when you used to go to Mass, there was 11, there was 11 in Roberta's family as well. I said, you all walked down the bog lane, as they called it, down to Mass in Sion Mills. And I said, there was 11 of us, but we came down in the Mercedes. <laughs> And she said, yeah, but she had no fucking toilet. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> you know, it was just, <laughs> I just couldn't stop laughing. I just thought about it, you know. Uh, it, it really is mad. It was mad. It was just so different. Daddy, like, at that time, that told me one time that, and like that was when they were living in the old house. Right. That a wheel came off, a brand new lorry was after buying. Yeah. Yeah, he turned on it probably. That's right. And into a garage with two brand new Toyotas and nearly wrote him off and had to buy him. He did. And no Tyler. Dad, poor daddy. <laughs> daddy, I remember I remember one time, you know, my mother was always Mammy was always great. She wanted a car for herself. And Daddy went out and he bought her a Toyota Corolla 20. Brand new. And it was a lovely car. It was an orange one. It was a lovely car. And she was mad about it. And then you see, um, Daddy used to park the lorry over in Port Leash and Mammy would have to go over for him at night. She'd bring him home, make him a feed, 
drop him back to Port Leash, and he'd head off then to Clondalkin with a load of timber. But anyway, she loved this Toyota. And Daddy went away one Saturday, him and Larry Kavanagh. And when them two got together, it was a disaster. <laughs> he landed back. <laughs> he, he swapped... He swapped the brand new Toyota for a 12-year-old Mercedes. <laughs> and he landed home with this Mercedes into the yard. My mother went out and Mammy looked at I'm not driving that, she says. Jim, oh, you may drive it. I'm not driving it now. I'm not driving it. That's it. So Mammy was raging over this car. And it was probably, that was on a Sunday. And I think it was Monday night anyway. Daddy rang Mammy. You have to come over to collect me in Port Leash. I'm not driving that car. I said, you may come with me. So I got, went out and got into the car with her and we were trying to find where the lights were. We were trying to find where everything was and she drove it over. She was granddad after, but she was raging. She'd be raging when she hears this podcast as well. But um, it was just so, and daddy would just go out and do, and sometimes I could do stuff like that. Just, you know. Sometimes our, 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 our hearts get in the way of what our heads are telling us. Exactly. Now, in fairness, my wife, Roberta, is a very, as you know, Roberta, very down-to-earth girl. Um, would have her head fairly well screwed on when it comes to stuff like that. And she'd, she'd rein me in at times, you know, that sort of way. Because I would do it. Because when I moved up north first, I could see these cars and they were all so much cheaper than they were down here, you know. And I said, just we'll have to get one of them, you know. Mm. <laughs> that, you know? <laughs> but we did. And we got, remember, we got the Volvo, the 760 yeah. at the time. Sure, I thought that was just. And I remember we were, we were, we were in bed, you know, one night and we were only after getting the new right. car. Oh. And I had the car parked out in the drive, you know. And of course, I could see the car sort of from the bench. She says to me before we went to sleep, do you want me to get you another pillow so you can prop you up that you can sleep right? <laughs> you know, things like that. But that we we were grew up, daddy loved cars. And he was the only one of the cuddies really that was big into, into the cars. And we all sort of took after him from yeah. that point of view. And sure, I mean, sure Whether for the good or the bad. So we're all, that's the way we are. Yeah. Well, Sean, thanks for coming. What do you think? It was, it was grand, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very, very good now in all fairness. I so the next time you're down, come down again. We'll have a chat. But I want to set a scene because I was in the band with Sean and you'd be doing concerts and the place would be hopping and you'd be dancing and they'd be jiving and then Sean would do this thing and it was, it was a shock to me when you'd done it first and you'd just say, tell the band to stop yeah. and you'd sing this song and everything would go quiet and it's just a great song and I'm just going to shut up just sing a couple of verses of it. The boys used to say to me in the band, give us a break. <laughs> <Sing the rocks. laughs> Mark would shout back in the back The Rocks <laughs> <laughs> Because he'd be tired The Mark drummer would be tired And he'd shout out The Rocks to me Oh God You know When I think back but, And you know People look for it in a, You'll see when I sing it They look for this song In a dance setting Which is not suitable at all Do you know when it was wrote? Pardon? Do you know how long ago It was wrote? No I don't really know And I don't know much about it really People have come up to me in, on a, We did a couple of Irish things Over in Spain And people from Kerry Actually come up and said to me Do you know where the rocks of Bon are? I said no I haven't a clue And you're singing about it And you don't know where it is And one guy was it. Well he tried to tell me Where it was from And I can't even remember um, my short-term memory is not just fantastic. You know what I mean? It's totally. It was originated in Galway in the 18th century. No, oh, Galway. That's why Matt's on the big money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Matt, good man yourself. Isn't it great to have technology at hand? Oh, to brilliant. find out these and things. And there I was my whole lifetime thinking I knew everything and I didn't well, need you it. I didn't know everything. <laughs> no, but I have to say to you, uh, continued success uh, with the, the podcast oh thanks look if I go out of business in the morning I just go I do my days the same only I have less to do 
But I mean, people come up to me and they'd say to me, uh, isn't David Cuddy your brother? I'd say, yeah, why? <laughs> <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> what did he say this time? Or who did he insult? <laughs> you know, and um, you see, it's a different, different way of going. Do you know what I mean? Different way of going. It's a pity now that you can't come up to my weekend sometime. A lot of my fans would be asking me, would David not come up? And sure, ha- never and get talk him in to people. But, but you should try and come up. Do you know how many kids I have? I know you have four. I don't have four yet, but it's going to be, it's, it's turtle heading. Um, yeah, and it really will be. No, I mean, I, we were two, and I'll tell you, I, we, I remember when we had Sean and Amy, and we'd said, will we have another one? And we'd talk about it and said, no. Two was just nice. Well, three. So that just was grand, you know. It is fair, you know, it's fair work now to rear. I'm worried about not population, populating the, prob- the planet properly. Oh, I think you're populating fine. I think you've done your bit now for society. <laughs> I oh, mean, I, I just... Uh, no, I'm thinking about when I'm older. Will the you? joy. The joy I get home, my kids. Well, in fairness, you do get great joy. And you know what? Sometimes when you have a big family, they're actually easier to rear than one or two. Because I'll let they, you know. They rear one another. No, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you well, know. Well, look, I mean, you look at us. We reared one another. Every one of us. I mean, like, 11 of us at home, and I mean, there was... What was there at home at that time? And we all go on fine and everybody does, you know. Sometimes kids now, when they're in a sitting where there's just the two, they're spoiled and they get everything. And that's not a good thing either. Mm. We spoil our kids. We've all spoiled our kids because we want to give them what we didn't get. Such is life. Well, you know, that's just the way life is, you know. Anyway, the rocks are born. Yep. Go for it. <laughs> I'm just going to do a little bit now. don't like pulling at them things you know come come all you loyal heroes and listen unto me don't hire with any farmer till you know what your work will be you will rise up in the morning From the clear daylight till the dawn And you never will be able For to plough the rocks upon My shoes they are worn And my stockings they are thin My heart is always trembling now for fear they might give in. My heart is always trembling now, from the clear daylight till the dawn. And I never will be able for to plough the rocks upon. I never will be able for to plough the rocks upon. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> what, you don't like the cheap sound effects? Oh, it's very good. Thanks a million, Sean.